0: Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash Snap Sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes.
1: Election 2020, Voices of
2: This land is your land, and this land is my land. From California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. Snap
1: Sessions presents a special episode for November 2020, featuring interviews with 10 politically engaged people in Mendocino County. We spent some time from the end of August to early October talking to citizens, politicians, and activists here in Mendocino. Our hope was to weave their answers together into a narrative of political expression on the eve of one of the most important elections in American history.
0: We spoke to 10 people we knew were active in politics here in Mendocino County and asked them each three questions. Number one, tell us about your political coming of age. What were the events or people that got you involved and interested in politics? Tell us about these motivating political moments for you and how they helped define you politically.
1: Number two, we assume you had some feelings, either pro or con, in November 2016 when Donald Trump was elected. Tell us about those feelings and how you responded emotionally and in action to his electoral college victory. What did you resolve to do? How have political events since further driven you to action?
0: Number three, what are your hopes for the November election and its aftermath? Be as optimistic or pessimistic as you want. Then take in a breath and tell us what you realistically think will happen. Either way, do you think the U.S. and the world might be a bit different in the summer of 2021?
1: We made a list of folks we knew were either involved as office holders, activists, or were people in the community who were politically engaged. We realized early on that we needed more ethnic and philosophical diversity. We know we came up short in this regard, but we did work hard to contact a variety of people. In the end, we gathered together these ten citizens who were interested in expressing their views. Here now, a Snap Sessions snapshot of election 2020 in Mendocino County.
0: The ten citizens we talked to included Karen Bowers, an activist with the Coast Democrats, businessman Stephen Dunlap, voter activist Carrie Durkee, Rabbi Margaret Holub of the Mendocino Jewish Community Center, Ukiah City Councilwoman Mole Mulheron, bookstore owner and indivisible activist Christy Olson-Day, Longtime Fort Bragg City Councilman, Lindy Peters. Mendocino Coast Clinic Administrator, Lucretia Renteria. Mendocino High School Civics and History Teacher, Andy Wellspring. And Mendocino Coast 5th District Supervisor, Ted Williams. All have spent extensive time in Mendocino County, and some grew up here, but most moved here as adults.
1: On the eve of this seemingly epic and potentially transformative election, we began our interviews. The first thing we asked was, how did you become interested in politics? What were motivating events from your youth or from an earlier time in your life that brought you to this place?
0: We'll start with Lindy Peters, Fort Bragg City Councilman and former mayor. Peters is 67 and grew up in California. He attended Whitman College in Washington, originally on a basketball scholarship, graduated from UC Santa Barbara, and ended up on the North Coast in the early 1980s.
3: Well, the first thing I remember that really caught my attention, I was 10 years old when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And I remember very clearly my father was very bright and he was street smart too. He had grown up in the Detroit area. You couldn't get anything by him. He was, you know, as we all say, the smartest guy in the room. So what I remember distinctly is the Sunday following the assassination, our family was getting ready for church, the TV was on. And as a 10 year old, I watched. Jack Ruby shoot Lee Harvey Oswald on live television. As soon as that happened, my father walked up to the TV, turned it off and said, it's a conspiracy, walked out of the room. And then I couldn't quite understand what that was. And later we were watching, uh, they were talking about Lee Harvey Oswald as a suspect and whether or not they'd done a powder burn test, which is something they do in forensics to see if someone had fired a weapon. And they asked if the powder burn uh, test results were back from Lee Harvey Oswald. And the chief of police for Dallas said, no, we don't have the results, but we understand they will be positive. And my father said, see, and then I got it. But the first real coming of age in working in politics was in 1968 when I was 15 years old. I worked for Eugene McCarthy. He was a peace candidate in 1968 before Robert Kennedy joined the race. I just remember I had older friends who had been to Vietnam and come back, and every one of them was completely different. And every one of them said, don't go. We don't know what we're doing over there. It's crazy. So I knocked on doors as a 15-year-old. Some of the people were kind of startled that answered the door with a 15-year-old kid that was, at that time, six years away from being able to vote, and was asking him to vote for Eugene McCarthy. I worked hard for him, and uh, you know, '68 was really a bad year. Everything really um, kind of blew up with the assassination of Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy. That's when I realized, hey, something needs to change, and maybe I can be part of that change. And so that's that's really what. Uh, got me going was that year 15 years old 1968.
1: Karen Bowers has been a Democratic Party activist for much of her life. She first became politically motivated in her teens and was determined to go to UC Berkeley to follow her dreams and that led her to a very historic evening during the 1968 Democratic Party presidential campaign.
4: I really wanted to bypass high school and just go straight to Berkeley. I wanted to be there during the free speech movement and so forth. I worked as a junior counselor in a very left-wing day camp in Burbank, California, and we did marches for civil rights and stuff, made signs, and so really early on I had this urge to be active. My parents feared my going to Berkeley because my cousin was best friends with Mario Savio. And my mother thought I would end up in jail if I hung out with those guys. So (laughs) I went to Santa Barbara for four quarters where I had gone on a special program during high school. The very first thing there was the Dow Chemical demonstr against Dow Chemical demonstration and, and so forth. And so I knew that no matter where I went at that point, there was going to be like minded people who were, you know, in the resistance, so to speak. I did finally get to Berkeley. I put in my transfer without telling my parents and just announced that I was going there. I worked for Robert Kennedy and we had an Office, uh, Students for Kennedy, and we booked a uh, room at the Ambassador Hotel for election night in June primary 1968. So we waited till the polls closed and then uh, we went to the Ambassador. I and a friend of mine got to the hotel and somebody said that Robert Kennedy was doing interviews up on, I think it was the ninth floor. And my friend grabbed me and he says, we're going. And so we went up in this elevator and I will never forget this because I had my little Students for Kennedy button on and my purse and that was it. And we get off the elevator and there was nobody there. you know. And I said, wow, I can't believe we're doing this and there's nobody stopping us. There's nobody asking what's in your purse or who the hell are you? So we walked down the hall and he was in with Walter Cronkite in an interview, Robert Kennedy came out uh, after the interview before he went down to the ballroom and he looked at me and my students for Kennedy button and he asked me if I answered the phone at our headquarters because he had called every single headquarters the night before the primary to find out if people needed anything and I did not answer the phone there somebody else did but they thought it was a friend of ours doing an impersonation and they started saying we need a hundred telephones and a thousand pencils and all this other stuff and I said I know exactly what you mean I my apologies we didn't know it was really you. And he said, no problem. I really appreciated all the work you guys were doing. And then he went down to the ballroom. And uh, my friend and I ended up watching his remarks because the ballroom was packed. We ended up in a suite with a Kennedy, part of the Kennedy family, And it was, they were talking about the party afterwards at Peter Lawford's and I thought maybe we could go and they served us drinks and the whole thing. And then the TV shut off and there was this incredible, like a shadow had come over the room. We took the stairs down, not the elevator. I had no idea what was happening. When I got down to our suite, two of my friends had actually been in the kitchen where he had been killed that changed my life. That's when I threw myself into academia, decided I was going to be a professor of political science. Actually, political theory was my major. And that was kind of it. I tried working on McGovern's campaign, and I tried doing some local politics, but I actually couldn't get myself back into it for a really long time.
0: Carrie Durkee has also been active in grassroots politics most of her life. She was born in the late 1940s in the East Bay and has been a physical education teacher, professor, sports enthusiast, as well as a gardener and landscaper. Her coming of age was during the women's movement.
5: It was really the women's movement that inspired me and I started going to uh, Consciousness raising groups and getting a better understanding of uh, the position of women in the culture, you know, the history. One time I went to a conference at Galileo High School in in, uh, San Francisco, and it was focused on pornography and women's image in the the culture. And I think I was just so shocked about the reality of what uh, was out there for people to um, use. And the violence in it was, to me, horrific. Soon after that, there was a a march on Broadway, and it was called Take Back the Night. So I was involved in that, and I think that's what really gave me a lot of energy and made me realize that some of the qualities that I was uh, sort of assumed were not really (laughs) part of the culture. I I joined a group called Women Against, violence in media and pornography and we did all kinds of things uh, including quote unquote some violent actions ourselves i think you know about painting billboards and changing reversing signs that we didn't see as appropriate and talking to people about trying to get certain pornography out of the shop Actually, we interviewed prostitutes and dancers and tried to get a sense of the reality of what they had to live with and why they had the jobs. And we didn't really want to be just screaming into the dark without any uh, basis for what we were talking about. So we tried to touch base with uh, people really at the front lines. Later, I uh, came out myself as a lesbian.
1: Rabbi Margaret Holub has been a fixture at the Mendocino Jewish Community Center and in our community for about 30 years. She hails from Orange County and credits her early activism to her time working with the Los Angeles Catholic Worker, a group that's been working on progressive causes since the Great Depression. Well, I think
6: really for me, the... um, like ground zero of my political and social orientation, I think has to do with some time that I spent at the Los Angeles Catholic Worker in the 1980s. And I, I ended up there largely because I had this amazing teacher when I was 10 years old for one semester who completely riveted my life and still does, he's still really an important part of my, of my life and my, my sense of the world. And he later went on to to join The Worker, and I kind of followed in his footsteps some years later. As I was thinking about the question, there there are really two things about that experience. So let me say, first of all, for those who who don't know The Catholic Worker, it's a movement that started in the 30s um, during the Depression, and it understands itself to be anarchist and pacifist. Catholic Worker communities typically live in places of social distress of different kinds, mostly in this country. And they kind of do the traditional works of mercy, feeding and sheltering and all that kind of stuff, and then also resist war. And so I kind of fell off the turnip patch. As I was thinking about it, there were two two different things about that experience that have affected me ever since. And one was that in the late 70s, in the end of the Carter era, there was actually an economic downturn that happened. And a lot of People working in steel and coal and kind of heavy manufacturing in the Midwest and everything suddenly became, you know, they were laid off, whole factories were closing left, right and center, you know, and some portion of those people got on Greyhound buses and came to LA and came to the streets So the Catholic worker had been there for years and it had a soup kitchen and there was a line and it used to be kind of old white guys. And then starting about 1980, 1981, when I started hanging out there, we literally saw the line grow every single day until it was like a thousand people standing, waiting for food. Um, And they were young black men. They were young black men from the Midwest and the South. I think that experience of watching that And then seeing these guys who came out, you know, thinking they'd be able to get a job and build their lives again, seeing them just absolutely fall apart on the streets of Skid Row, you know, in weeks, really just disintegrate. I think that gave me this sense of how kind of like distant trends really shake down into people's lives, sometimes in such a brutal way, you know. So I began, I think, to have a feeling for poverty and for the really the cruelty and the viciousness of poverty and also a sense of how it comes about you know or at least some ways that it comes about so so that was one piece and then the other piece was that the catholic worker is anarchist you know by by definition not antifa they they really believe that if you want to create something you need to just take responsibility and do it that you don't write a grant, you don't form a committee, you don't do all that kind of stuff. You go out and you, you kind of live into it the way you want. And so we started all kinds of projects during those times. And I was really affected by that idea. And I think that kind of shaped me for living here, where we sort of, we try to just build the world how we want it to be in some ways, instead of waiting for somebody else to do it for us. <laughs>
0: Lucretia Renteria is the administrator of the Mendocino Coast Clinic, one of the biggest healthcare facilities on the Mendocino Coast. She is a Latina woman who was raised in Nevada in a bilingual home. She is married to a Mexican man and carries her heritage proudly. For Lucretia, a catalyzing event was the 1994 push by California Governor Pete Wilson to pass Proposition 187, a referendum meant to limit immigrant rights.
7: Definitely it was Proposition 187. I had been working for a couple of years at the clinic. Um, I started as a Spanish language interpreter to open up services to the Spanish-speaking population here on the coast, and Prop 187 horrified me. The thought that healthcare providers would be immigration police to try to report people's status in the country was just horrifying. And so uh, I met a lot of activists during that time. I did phone calling, I did voter registration work. We just polled and worked very closely with like Steve Antler. I met Rabbi Margaret during that time. It was just such a catalyst to get me to pay attention to politics and the laws and uh, people trying to make the laws. There was a lot of fear for as, for as horrific as the proposition was, people thought that it meant even worse things. So a lot of fear and misinformation came out around it and uh, people asking questions. And we had to work really hard for people to feel safe and comfortable coming in for health care. That was one of the targets was that we would be collecting uh, citizenship or residency status or status of undocumentation um, and have the obligation to report it. And so as hard as we worked to defeat 187, we were also trying to put out information about the fact that it wasn't already in place. It wasn't already the law. Um, and we were going to work really hard against it and try to allay those fears so that people would continue to seek health care, send their kids to school because Families were afraid even to send their kids to school. It it was a horrible time, and I'm so glad that there was such a strong response to it and such support from across the state that, you know, it didn't pass. The other defining moment, I think, was when my husband became a U.S. citizen. He naturalized. We had our oldest who was in second grade, and I took him out of school for the day so that he could go watch his dad swear in as an American citizen. And we went down to San Francisco, and it was a beautiful ceremony. It was a wonderful experience for him. We got our sample ballots the other day, and we were sitting down talking about them. And and I love the fact that he's excited about voting, and he's excited about being a citizen. And yet he holds dual citizenship, but that ceremony was also just a beautiful moment. (music)
0: Christy Olson-Day is the owner of the Gallery Bookstore in Mendocino and the leader of the Mendocino Huddle, an indivisible activist group. She grew up with activist teacher parents in Washington and moved to Mendocino with her husband in 1998.
8: Well, I think it was even earlier than that. And and definitely, you know, my parents weren't activists, but they were both union members. They were both teachers. When I was a little kid, pretty, pretty young, this is the 70s, my dad's Union went on strike and it was uh, it was a pretty big deal Uh, there hadn't been many teacher strikes in Washington it was one of the first it was long it was bitter it was fierce I was just a little kid like six or seven years old I think you know it really it's an indelible memory for me a school bus ran his foot over on the picket lines Um, I I learned the word scab you know it was it was very intense and, and it dragged out and even more so when it was over my dad put his picket signs up in our garage where they stayed for years and years. I can, I can still see them. I, the one in particular that I saw like every time we came and went from that garage said no contract, no work. And then down at the bottom, it said WEA, NEA, EEA. And I asked him what that meant and he explained, you know, it's the the National Teachers Association or Education Association. It's the Washington Education Association. It's the Everett Education Association. And even as a little kid, you know, I overheard them talking about how they were getting financial support from teachers on the other side of the country. And it impressed me that there was this network of people supporting each other. And, and I think I kind of imprinted on the idea of collective action, you know, because of that. And then my mom would take me to the caucuses too. This was up in Washington. We the, the Dems caucused for a long time. And uh, I was a quiet little kid. So she'd drag me along and I'd be out of the way. And I don't know, I think I just came to associate, to have a, have a good feeling about collective action, about community, politics associated in some way with people coming together and supporting each other. You know, they were interested
1: in politics, they weren't activists, but those, those things really affected me. Ted Williams is Mendocino County's 5th District Supervisor. He was elected in 2018 after serving as Chief of the Albion Little River Fire Department for a number of years. I can vouch for his Fire Chief competence. In August 2017, I had to call 911 for an emergency, and Ted and his crew arrived at my house in less than 10 minutes. It turns out that Ted's interest in politics came later and didn't really have much to do with classic electoral politics.
2: Well, Doug, actually, I've always had a bit of a distaste for politics, and I think it was similar to joining the fire department. I was an able body. I thought I could at least show up, hold a sign, help my neighbors. And I saw that our county operates like a 1950s office. With a lot of uh, paper files, a lot of inefficiency, not a lot of technology. And I thought I've had some experience with technology. Um, perhaps I could help modernize and give the people a better return on investment. In, es- in essence, improving services while uh, mitigating uh, inconvenience and intrusion upon uh, um, people and business. Of course, you know po- all politics starts local. So we're not going to solve climate change. Well, certainly not in the the current national. Um, political arena, but we're not going to solve those large issues uh, just with a top-down approach. It needs to happen uh, throughout the nation, throughout the world, and and so I look at some of these great concerns of the next generation and think I should be uh, part of finding local solutions, doing our doing our piece. And just like I thought, I'm an able body. You know, I can carry a ladder, I can spray some water, I can help my neighbors. So I think this is another way to to help the next generation. Well, I think it came about organically and grew over time I don't know that there's one particular moment that I would point to you know I didn't think I would run for office and then uh, when I did run for office I thought I can at least get in on the debates and ensure that we have a conversation about some of our pressing issues I didn't know how it would resonate with the public and I didn't want to sell the public on me I just wanted uh, to represent a perspective
0: Mo Mulherin is a Ukiah City Councilwoman who was the mayor of Ukiah last year. The mayorship rotates in most of the county's towns. Mo grew up in Ukiah, became an insurance saleswoman, and nurtured a strong desire to improve her hometown.
9: Well, I've been a a small business owner, and I'm born and raised in Ukiah, so I've been paying attention to local politics. My dad actually on the planning commission when I was a kid and ran for city council and supervisor. I think that I was attending planning commission meetings when I was in like eighth grade. So it was part of something that our family was just always involved and engaged in. When I was 27, for my birthday, I made it my 10-year goal to become the mayor of Ukiah. In that time period, they switched the way that the mayor worked and now it's a rotated position instead of an elected position. Most of the time they say that um, when somebody runs for city council it's because they got mad about something. I guess that's what really just spurred me to actually jump in and run for city council is that I was tired of other people making decisions for us and complaining about it. So it's kind of like um, get off the sidelines and and be up there helping to make the decisions or quit complaining. So I ran for city council in 2014, and there were three seats, and I barely beat the mayor out by 24 votes. So it was incredibly close. In the election in 2018, I was the highest vote getter, you know, some over over 2,000 votes for the city of Ukiah, and then served last year as the mayor. I think that what I learned as a city council member pretty quickly is that the city council doesn't have much say or or discretion over what happens with humans in our community. So homelessness, drug addiction, mental illness, all of the funding comes through the board of supervisors, and they're the ones really making the decisions about that. And I felt like there were some things that we could do differently in our community. So I announced that I was running for second district supervisor in January of 2019. (laughs)
1: Andy Wellspring is a 39-year-old civics and history teacher at Mendocino High School. He grew up in the Bay Area, attended UC Berkeley, was an exchange student in Ghana in West Africa, has a wife who works for Project Sanctuary, and a five-year-old daughter. Andy attributes his political coming of age to being energized by high school friends.
10: I guess my first experience of kind of becoming politicized was in high school when I met two friends who were gay, and um, they worked in the high school newspaper. And I joined the high school newspaper class. Um, I met them, and they were always talking about all these things I didn't know anything about. That was really what it was: was meeting these folks. And they were like, "Let's go! We're going to the AIDS walk in San Francisco." And I think through their um, community there, that they had been reaching out to um, the gay community, queer community, that they knew what was going on in the world, and I was very lucky to meet them and be um, invited along. Um, I remember going up to San Francisco for an AIDS walk, just being blown away by how many people were there. And, you know, just a big march through San Francisco. This must have been in like 1999. After the march ended up at this other place and there was a a protest going on over there and we walked over to it and it was a a Free Mumia Abu Jamal um, protest. And I was just listening to the speakers there and just learned so much about what's going on with how many people are in prison and what's happening with him being falsely accused and kept in prison as a, as a symbol. Um, so I still hope for the day of the Free Mumia. Uh-huh.
0: Steven Dunlap is a Mendocino County businessman, owner of Dunlap Roofing as well as Pacific Blue Vacation Rentals. He hails from Missouri and lived in Texas before moving to Ventura County in Southern California and then Mendocino about 30 years ago. Dunlap had very little interest
11: in politics until recently. And to be honest, I didn't pay much attention to politics. I found nothing interesting, significantly. Until 2015 and then things got a little interesting. I found the entire process quite entertaining uh, In a different manner than many did (laughs) But uh, um, it was a great source of humor to watch the nightly fonging and hand-wringing over Trump to watch him decimate his opponents and I think the reason I've never had much interest is most of the politicians I grew up with were politicians I never expected any of them to be truth-tellers. I never... Why bother listening to someone who's not really telling you what they think anyhow? I see today many of the European leaders want to investigate Putin over this Navalny poisoning. Uh, what, what a waste of time to ask Putin to investigate himself. <laughs> He's not going to tell you the truth. Li of China won't tell you the truth. None of our, they never tell you the truth. So why listen to liars? Or those who cover the truth, where Trump was different. Certainly didn't like everything that came out of his mouth, but it was different, and it was, you know, entertaining. And he said what he thought. And then, so things got interesting then.
1: So there are a variety of experiences represented here. Some folks have been politically interested since school days. Others could not have cared less back then, but have found themselves woken up since. Yet few had no reaction to the election of 2016. We then asked our second question. Number two, we assume you had some feelings either pro or con in November 2016 when Donald Trump was elected. Tell us about those feelings and how you responded emotionally and in action to his electoral college victory. What sort of things did you resolve to do? How have political events since further driven you to action?
0: The first respondent is Lindy Peters.
3: Well, I never liked Donald Trump. Back in the 80s, when he first started getting his name in the news, I thought, right then, this guy's a con man. I just didn't like him. He reminded me of the kid in school that should have been taken behind the gym and taught a lesson, so to speak. I was worried. Uh, We had taken a vacation out of Mendocino County in September of that year on our anniversary, Sarah and I, my wife. And we saw nothing but Trump signs in Navador County. And I thought, "Mm -hmm, maybe the guy's got a chance. I've been watching the news. Everybody says he doesn't have a chance. And then I knew the key states and what was going on. And I'll tell you what, Doug, uh, by by six o'clock our time, when I saw what was going on in Florida, in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, and Wisconsin, I said, it's over. It's done. He's going to win. I turned off the TV. I left the house and I walked around town for probably three and a half to four hours. I came home my wife was in tears, couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep very well either. But within a few weeks, I became mayor again. And I thought, you know, it's too hard to start at the top and change things there. For this country to make major changes, it has to start at the bottom. All the small little cities and communities have to ignore what's going on in Washington, D.C., and shore up their own communities and do what's best for their communities. And if we all do that, then that'll change this country. So the first thing I did as mayor is we brought forth a resolution. You might remember sanctuary cities were in the news at that time, and there was a threat that uh, if you uh, were a sanctuary city, Well, even if you weren't at that time, one of the first things President Trump said he was going to do is he was going to get ICE to come to all the communities across America and uh, ferret out all the illegal aliens and send them back to Mexico. And uh, so I felt as mayor that our town had a lot of Hispanics. I've done a lot of coaching in soccer and Little League, and they were always a high percentage of my teams, and they were great kids, and their families were great families. They were woven into the fabric of this community, and we needed to assure them that they were protected. We passed a resolution, uh, a unanimous resolution, uh, in January of 2017, that basically said, our police are not going to cooperate with ICE if they come to our town. And that if you're an illegal immigrant, feel free to report a crime to our police, because they're not going to question where you're from. And you're not going to go back to Mexico. A lot of people came up to me after that meeting when we passed it in tears, saying this is the proudest they've ever been of the city of Fort Bragg. And I had the Hispanic owner of La Bamba at the time come to me and again just start weeping. And uh, he was so thankful that we'd done that as a city to protect them.
1: Teacher activist Carrie Durkee was also fairly shocked and found herself redoubling her efforts at community education.
5: Well, I guess like many of us, I I was shocked and dismayed and basically couldn't believe that people really could put their weight behind such a person. And uh, so I think I just doubled down on the teaching and decided that, Really, what I wanted to do was continue to have conversations with people, to expand people's view, to give them opportunities to be engaged, to um, bring people to the table, and hopefully bring the best of them forward. And that's what we try to do, really, in these classes: is try to take people where they are, but also like aspire to something uh, better, and try to problem solve with each other so that we have you know, a collective mind of sorts.
0: Karen Bowers also looked to her spiritual community for support.
4: Well, um, election night, I saw the handwriting on the wall, and um, I was devastated. However, just a little backdrop to that, I did get out the vote phone banking in Mendocino County for Hillary Clinton and other things on our uh, county agenda. And what I encountered were a lot of people who were not voting. They didn't like either candidate. Um, I was quite amazed at the deep uh, feelings that people had, and the ballot was long and hard to understand for some people. So I actually was witness here locally to a lot of people who did not vote, or said they weren't gonna vote. And that's kind of you know, part and parcel of a lot of what happened. That said, I was so devastated. I got together with Rabbi Margaret Holub, who on um, Inauguration Day, we went to the shul, we gathered together, I'm going to get very emotional about this, because it was a very emotional gathering, and we did some prayer. And then we decided to develop what we called a statement of principles for our group. And we formed what has become and what is called the Mendocino Jewish Community Justice Group. It's a subgroup of the shul. It's not doesn't represent everybody's opinion who belong to that community, but it is a group, and we developed a statement of principles by which we would operate during the course of the Trump administration, and. You know, a lot of it had to do with, you know, the values that we worked for in, you know, all of the campaigns I've mentioned. And so um, guaranteeing access to health and public education and a whole bunch of things, you know, fair elections and, and so forth. And so one of the first projects that we developed that we did, which is a success to this day, is called the Citizenship Scholarship Program. We decided that the best thing we could do for our community was to try to help people become citizens and vote.
1: Rabbi Margaret Holla was at the shul and was dealing with her own feelings as well as those of her congregation.
6: Well, I remember that we had a a meeting of our elders group on the day of the election, and I remember somebody in the group saying so proudly and happily, we're going to go home tonight and we're going to watch the election of our first woman president. And I got together with some friends to watch the election. And of course it didn't go that way. And I was sick to my stomach. I had always been a little bit active politically over the years, not constantly, but episodically, and um, I had always kept kind of a firewall between myself as a rabbi, or, you know, as the rabbi of the Mendocino Coast Jewish community, and whatever I did personally, and I kind of had a policy that I I wouldn't try to enlist anybody in the Jewish community in anything that I did, you know, I would do it on my own scheme, and my own time, and I wouldn't sort of preach and write and whatever rabbis do about it, and, uh Within a day or so after Trump's election, I, I had this kind of reckoning with myself, and I wrote a letter to the Jewish community, and I said just that. I've always been politically active, but I've kept a firewall between myself and the Jewish community, and with this election, that firewall is coming down. And I just want you to know that I'm going to be speaking out and acting in every way that I can figure out. And I'm not going to try to keep it separate from the Jewish community anymore. And that was, you know, it doesn't sound like the biggest thing in the world, but for me personally, it really was, because it was the first time that I was willing to take the blowback for um, organizing in the Jewish community. And we formed the Justice Group. And, you know, we just tried to figure out what we could do. We actually had, you know, in addition to the planning meetings and all of that, we, we had a, a very moving service during the time of the inauguration. And I remember the shul was full of people just to be together and to pray and to hold hands, you know, during that hour. And then we tried to just get active. And, you know, I can talk about some of what the Justice Group has done. That's really been the main kind of focus of my own activism since then. And I guess for me, both the work that we do and just the existence of the Justice Group on the coast and in the Jewish community has been really, really important to me in the last three and a half years. It's taken a certain amount of work just to to kind of shepherd that process of our becoming a group and figuring out our agenda and then doing it. So sometimes I feel like, like you were saying, you're sort of more of a talker than a walker. Sometimes I feel like I'm, you know, like sitting and writing minutes and calling people who freaked out and saying, blah, 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 you know, more than I am the one who's out doing the frontline stuff that we're doing. So I cannot imagine surviving the last three and a half years without the justice group and also without the existence of the huddle and the Democrats and the, um, you know, all the other activist groups that are, we're sort of like a coalition of friendship, you know, even if we don't go to each other's meetings. And it means the world to me. It absolutely means the world to me that this whole fabric of work has come together. And and as I think about that, I sort of feel like over time, what's sifted out is that each group is sort of holding down a different corner of the tent. The justice group tends to be more project-based. We're not for ethical reasons as well, as well as, you know, like technical reasons we're we're sort of technically nonpartisan. We don't, we haven't endorsed candidates and, and we don't write postcards for particular people who are running. Um, but we, you know, we've done a fair amount of work on the situation of immigrants in this, you know, in our County and beyond. And, um, on some climate things and, you know, other things that are more, they're more project related. And then, um, you know, I feel like the huddle is doing the postcards and, you know, all of that work. And there was that wonderful group that centered around the hospital and labor and delivery. And that was very on a particular campaign. And of course the Democrats are the Democrats and uh, lots of overlap, but all together we're a larger entity than we could be by ourselves. I think any of us.
4: And I'm
6: very appreciative of
7: that.
1: Lucretia Renteria was immediately worried about how the election would affect healthcare access at the Mendocino Coast Clinic. I was shocked.
7: I was shocked. I remember earlier that day sitting here in my office talking to a couple of my coworkers and discussing the fact that there was no possible way for him to win. It w- it was an impossible thing. That's that's what we thought. And as I I had a board meeting that night, and after the board meeting, I got home about seven o'clock and started watching some of the returns. And I remember picking up my phone and texting the person I had been talking to earlier that day saying, how is this possible? How is this possible? And it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. I was completely flabbergasted and really disappointed in our country, truly. And just realized how strategic that campaign had been run and how wrong the polls were and how silent his base had maintained their support. The next day when I came into work, because I I felt that probably the majority of our staff would be somewhat stunned by the results, Though, you know, I don't know for sure that we don't have supporters amongst our staff members and and everybody maintains professional decorum here, so that's fine. But I felt like I needed to put out some kind of statement. And so I I did write a company-wide email about the fact that in the end, community health centers have had bipartisan support from um, both parties when they're in the administration. And so there was no reason to expect that community health centers would come you know, to be targeted in particular, or have any, any reason to fear for our federal funding. And then I would keep them posted, uh, you know, on anything that seemed to be coming down the way from the new administration. But we should all take heart that, that in historically, uh, we as a safety net in this nation for healthcare have been leaned on and have been supported widely, both by Republicans and by Democrats. But that's about all I could really bring myself to say. I, could, I, I wasn't sure what else to say, but I think your jobs are secure. I think the clinic is secure. Our funding should be secure. We should be fine. I, I pretty much remain in shock.
0: For bookstore owner Christy Olson Day, the shock would lead to the greatest period of political action in her life.
8: Well, I mean, I was horrified. I was just horrified. Uh, I remember that we were doing a school book fair with the Mendocino K-8 school that week, the week of the election. And I think the very next day, that next evening was like a family literature night, you know, and we were putting on what was supposed to be this really fun event for families and moms, a lot of moms to celebrate reading and whatnot. And I just remember parents where we were just, just hugging each other. I think his election felt like such a slap in the face for women, particularly, that I think... Seeing all those moms the next day, you know that even at the time I thought, you know, I'm going to remember this. I'm going to remember this. The sadness Um, we were all just appalled and horrified and sad, or so many of us were. And then it was like that week. Kate McKinnon on uh, Saturday Night Live did did her performance of Hallelujah in her in her Hillary character. You remember that? It was like just. Funny and just so heartbreaking and I just cried and cried and mostly for my mom who you know she was a history teacher her whole career she cares so much about you know America and and democracy and she has dementia and I just felt like she she's not going to see a woman become president you know Or it's not going to mean what it would to her if she's still around. And I just was just so sad. But then people started talking about the Women's March like really, really soon after, you know, like within a couple of weeks. And so I kind of was interested and focused on that. My sister and my niece, my sister and her daughter went to D.C. for it. And I was kind of following the organization around that. And then some other local people, not me, started planning the local event here. But when I noticed that it was happening, but that they weren't doing online promotion, I offered to to do some of that because I had some skills from promoting bookstore events. And so I, I said, you know, I could, do you want me to, mention it on Facebook, and uh, and it exploded. I mean, it was amazing. If only any of my bookstore events ever got the kind of traction that that first Women's March did. Mm-hmm. Um, and you remember, you know, thousands and thousands of people showed up, and we built an email list from that, you know, which became the beginnings of the huddle. I don't know if you remember, but after the march, the, the National Women's March organization called for 10, 10 actions in 100 days, and then they They put them out one at a time. That very first action was actually, after the march, was actually sending a single postcard to your member of Congress, which I think was part of what got so many people interested in postcards. I sent a postcard to Dianne Feinstein, and uh, you were supposed to say what one of the issues you were concerned about, and I said income inequality was the thing I was most concerned about. But then the second action of those 10 was to gather your friends and huddle up. And that that was what became the beginnings of the huddle, which then, over time, became Indivisible Mendocino.
1: For Ted Williams, the election led him to consider just what had gone down and to muse about what this meant about the United States.
2: in, In the big picture... I found it fascinating how Americans narrowed down the choices. Were the uh, most capable choices out of a nation of about 320 million really um, Trump and Clinton? And I think there's always going to be a compromise. A two party system tends to uh, select candidates from the middle. But at the same time, uh, I think uh, the political elite play uh, a concerning role in our democracy. And imagine our, our form of democracy may not be the end solution. Imagine if we hadn't iterated from what our founding fathers had innovated. We would have a nation run by white land-owning men. And at some point, we decided uh, women have a role, and we decided uh, to stop being racist, and we decided you don't have to own land to have a say. And I don't see that progress necessarily stopping uh, where we are today. There's there's room for progress ahead. So I didn't see the two choices in front of us as leading the way on progress. And I would point to the need for campaign finance reform, the role of money in politics, the ability for corporations through these proxies to uh, buy results. And I I don't know if those two choices would have made it to the the running had it been uh, directly related to uh, representing the ideas of the people, no matter their political spectrum. I think there's, um, you know, if you want to look at conservatives, I think there's better conservative uh, choices. I actually don't see Trump as a conservative today. And I don't know that uh, Hillary Clinton was the progressive choice. There's probably folks who have a better background in ensuring a strong economy, ensuring a strong judicial system, ensuring health care for all than either of these candidates. So what I saw was a lot of people voting against, either they were voting against Trump or they were voting against Clinton. And I see, as we iterate, we want to move to a system of having the opportunity to actually vote for somebody we believe in.
0: Ukiah's Mo Mulherin realized the election pushed her further in the direction of community action and found herself wanting to invest her energy in her hometown.
9: It's kind of interesting now running for election for the supervisor race. I have this map of where my yard signs are. So I have uh, yard signs in every neighborhood in the second district and 11 different political parties. So It's amazing to me how many, how variety we have here politically in Mendocino County. And I feel, you know, as a Democrat and as a Bernie supporter, there were just a lot of disappointing things that have happened. I've talked to many people, you know, my brother-in-law says, you know, I voted for Trump because he was a businessman and I thought that that would be good for the economy. And now I, I realize that who he is as a human is not somebody that I would vote for again. Um, So it's kind of been a really interesting thing to just live here and grow up here and and have friends that are on both sides. I think the way that I connect to people locally is different than what happens on a national level. And as far as activism or community engagement, the tension on the national level, the unrest, the everything makes me really wanna focus in on our community and how I can help and support our community. What is it that I can do locally to connect everybody together so that we are not being divisive like things that are happening that we see on the news every day. That's really, I guess, where I turned my energy and my focus was what can I change right here in Ukiah and in Mendocino County to support my community.
1: Mendocino High School civics teacher Andy Wellspring wondered how he could channel his feelings into helping his students understand the election and to learn how to navigate the ever-morphing landscape of disinformation.
10: Ben, when Donald Trump was elected November 2016, I really let down in our country and scared. This is a scary situation. And, you know, Donald Trump was not a newcomer in the United States, like he he was a well known character. And so I just felt really frustrated that there were so many white people who were willing to vote for this person. And in terms of what kind of actions did I take on that, I I felt really like I had to strengthen my resolve of working at the high school with mostly white students at Mendocino High School, that is, and just recognizing that that like, okay, well, this is one of my main ways that I interact with the public is through my job. And I was like, what do these students need to know as they're growing up? Because there's, there is a lot of pressure in, on white people to vote for someone like Trump. It's like a huge percentage of white people supported him, right? And one thing I really looked into was the way that people are being manipulated on the internet um, and to, to believing certain things. There's a great program, and you all should check it out, coming out of Stanford. It's called Civic Online Reasoning. Excellent. They've been working really hard to keep it up to date. And it helps people. It gives little quizzes and stuff. You, you could take, anyone can take them. It's free online. But um, which website would you consider more credible? They give you a couple and um, you have to search around and you have to learn skills like don't just read the website itself, but open another tab, do some research about the website that you're on. Things like that, I think, are super important now. And I feel that that's one thing I've resolved to do, is to kind of educate more about understanding the Internet and where our information is coming from.
0: On the other hand, businessman Stephen Dunlap was intrigued and was hopeful that the new administration would have a better attitude toward government regulation of business.
11: It was interesting. The process, you know, I got more of a kick out of the process... I was definitely a never Hillary. I was a very reluctant maybe Trump supporter. I I liked that he was not afraid to to speak his mind for a change. Hillary didn't say anything interesting ever. She was just waiting to be coronated by the DNC. That's about boring and political. She had nothing to offer that hadn't been said a thousand times. I didn't always agree with what Trump was saying, but at least it wasn't the same malarkey that I had heard for decades, and largely ignored. As things went along and along, I kept hoping for him to quit being so self-destructive with his words, which he's still prone to do, as far as I'm concerned. He, um... I I don't understand why you start every day with shooting yourself in the foot and then go out and try to make friends. I don't get that. Um, So, that's when it got rolling and interesting, and it's been more the same since... I was right investing into the vacation rental business at that time and buying some vacation rental property, investing down in the harbor. And at that point, the economy was historically set to crash again, as it did in 8 09, which nearly wiped me out. So I did not want to go through that heartache again. So we're due for a decline and Trump gets elected at the same time. And I'm borrowing money to invest into a business. The timing was dreadful on my part, because as much as I found Trump entertaining, I did not vote for him, and there was plenty of potential that he would tank the whole thing, because he was unknown at that point, what he would actually do. So it was uh, was fun and exciting and scary all at the same time.
1: So as expected, the reactions to 2016 varied across political fissures and philosophies. But as we come to Election Day 2020, in the middle of a pandemic, people find themselves dreaming and hoping for big changes. We asked our third question, hoping to get people to imagine a better world.
0: Here again, question number three. What are your hopes for the November election and its aftermath? Be as optimistic as you want. Then take in a breath and tell us what you realistically think will happen. Either way, do you think the U.S. and the world will be quite a bit different in the summer of 2021? This time, we'll start with Stephen Dunlap.
11: First and foremost, period, the polarization has got to end. This hatred between groups is, like Trump's words, self-destructive. It does not help any of us to put others down. You can disagree with their points of view, with their politics, but they are still people that eat, sleep, poop, and we've got to to get along and work together we have to part of me has some liberal views i get a real kick out of greta thunberg i don't agree with her extreme measures but certainly we we live on this planet we have to clean it up we need to get the plastic out of the oceans we need to stop the plastic from going into the oceans wouldn't that be a lot easier than cleaning it up after it gets there go to the rivers where it all pours out and put a net think of something it could be monetized it could be capitalized for goodness sake there's nothing wrong with educating our youth, especially in the inner cities. Uh, you can't give free college to every human being in the country yet, but you could start with some form of education post-high school. You could do something. The uh, the healthcare matter. We can't give top-of-the-line health care to every single human being, but we can certainly start with something. You know, uh, preventative care. I have a very difficult time with obesity, which is a lifestyle choice in some cases. Uh, smoking, excessive alcohol, that kind of stuff. Um, You know, we've got to take care of our population because people who get sick are dependent on us to pay their bills. So if we can keep them from getting sick, if we can provide early health care, it helps us all. And all these matters could grow as time goes along with cooperation from both parties. You know, on the uh, conservative side, I, I like our border security. My son actually served at the border. He's in the Coast Guard and went down to help out the homeland security. And in the few months he was there, he never once saw one child even near a cage. In fact, if you're a common sense thinking, who's the most dangerous person that may be coming across the border? It's the young males. If anybody was confined and watched closely, it was the young males. The women and children are not going to attack you or us. They had most room of all. He saw with his own eyes. And I tried to share that with my friends on Facebook and... They did not want any part of it. Oh, you're a liar. Look, my son's there. I'm just telling you what he's reporting. And several people I got so frustrated with, I said, look, I'll pay for your plane ticket. I'll pay for your hotel room. You go there, report yourself. I'll just listen to what you say. And no one would take me up on. Free trip to Texas. That was very frustrating. Um, But, you know, I, I am a supporter of, you know, common-sense border security. Uh, Do we need a coast-to-coast wall? Uh, That's up to the um, border security people. We should listen to what they say. They're on the front lines. If they think they need a wall in some areas, fine. If they think they need drones in some areas, fine. They got a river in many places, that's fine. Why can't we just listen to them and give them what they need to do their job? Uh, As a businessman locally in the state of California, in Mendocino County, this over-regulation is absurd. The stuff that crosses my desk that I'm taxed and charged for is nonstop. It makes zero common sense. And if I didn't like clean coastal air, I'd be out of this state in a minute. But I like the environment here in Fort Bragg. I think it's very healthy. The people are great. And so I'm not leaving California because of regulations. But boy, if I do, it'll be because of that. So, you know, again, I have views on both sides. I'm actually a registered independent voter. And in 2016, I did not vote for Trump or Hillary. I voted libertarian.
1: Activist Carrie Durkee feels strongly about the need for healing and rebuilding.
5: Well, given the crisis, crisis, plural, it seems like everybody can contribute something. And the more people that do, the better our democracy is, as far as I'm concerned. So I think people are really willing to fight against things often, and to make the transition to working towards something, building things, is uh, what I'd like to see. So looking here at the coast, can we create more co-ops? Can we create food security? We can learn something about ourselves and what white privilege really means. So the kinds of things where there's more cooperation, reaching across boundaries,
0: Lucretia Renteria also sees a need for healing from the perspective of the Mendocino Coast Clinic and the Latinx community.
7: Well, definitely that we have President Biden in office with Vice President Harris. And a year out, I want to see that we have listened to the scientists, that we have defeated coronavirus, that we have a legitimate vaccine that we're distributing I want to see that we've strengthened our community health center safety network across the nation and that we've made a commitment to being to having equity for all who reside in the United States. I would like to see that there aren't any cages at the border, that families are reunited, that there's justice and that law enforcement has new training procedures in place. I mean, my dream is that we work together with law enforcement to come up with effective ways of community policing and not any destructive tendencies that there may be that are present. People are dying. We need to stop that. That somehow we've been able to recover from the economic impact that COVID has had across the nation and especially here in California and in our small town we see it. You see how many businesses have closed, how many lives have been affected, and hopefully we'll have some recovery a year from now.
1: Ukiah's Mo Mulherin yearns for more unity and for a greener planet.
9: I think what I'm hoping for is unity and communication. I'm hoping that we can work together to communicate and hear both sides and be able to have tough conversations. I've been having some tough conversations. Um, I do a, every other Zoom meeting for my campaign, but having some tough conversations about what it means to be an ally, um, what homelessness really looks like in our community. And I think that in order to have any breakthroughs or move forward as a community, we do have to have these tough conversations and figure out, why choices are being made, and what we can change about them. That's my hope, is that we get some unity and communication across the country. My fear is, I don't know how it could get any more divisive, but my fear is that it may become more divisive. And that is that is the kind of thing that keeps you up at night. Like, what does November 4th look like, and how does that carry us into the rest of the year? Are we going to be just completely broken and unable to communicate? As a society, or are we gonna figure out how to work together? I, I don't remember our nation being as divided. I understand, you know, it's always been partisan politics, and whoever was president, there's people on both sides that, you know, have their issues. I don't recall it ever being like this and, and being um, as completely divisive as it is right now. And it's scary. It's scary for a lot of things, for being able to communicate for being able to accomplish anything. I have so many green dreams. I am a huge advocate for mixed waste organics and for really teaching people how to dispose of their waste properly to get to zero waste. Active transportation is extremely important for the planet and for our health, our mental health. You know, During this pandemic, bike stores are sold out. And that is the most awesome problem to have. (laughs) So I think that we've learned and we have an opportunity to learn more about how each of us really does play a role in the protection of the planet. And it makes it less about them and more about all of us.
0: Mendocino High School's Andy Wellspring talks about specific actions he and his wife, Vicky are taking as we head toward the election.
10: We started a group here on the coast. My wife, Vicki Wellspring, is an amazing person. And um, together, we started a group. It's called Surge. That's an acronym, S-U-R-J. It stands for Showing Up for Racial Justice. This is a, it's a national group, but you could join our branch here by emailing us surgemendocost at gmail.com. That's S-U-R-J mendocost at gmail.com. I hope that the United States of America has the first black woman vice president. Seriously, the the first time I voted for president, I was excited to vote for Winona LaDuke as vice president, um, running with Ralph Nader in the year 2000. Um, I would just be overjoyed if we had a black woman vice president. Kamala Harris, you've got my vote. My hopes for that is that Joe Biden will listen to her um, every single day and um, that he will sleep in late and go to bed early. And when he's awake, he will give credit to Kamala Harris for all the work that I know she is able to do in running the country. And I hope that he really allows that to happen. Yeah, just listen to her every day and give her credit for
1: what she's going to be doing. Fort Bragg City Councilman Lindy Peters would also like to see major political changes.
3: Well, what I'd like to see is I'd like to see uh, Biden-Harris win. I think that there's a lot of healing that needs to go on in our country right now. And I think that the folks that are saying the riots will happen if Biden is elected, come on, they're already happening and it's only going to get worse. Uh, I fear a Trump victory. I think he might win again. I don't have a lot of faith in the intelligence of the average American voter or in the morals and, you know, scruples that they might take into the polling booths. I mean, here's a guy that said himself he could walk down the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and the people would still vote for him. You know, he he believed it when he said it and everybody laughed, but it's true. And there's no getting through to them. You, You can't convince them. You know, there's been over 270 criminal indictments for people involved in his administration. That just outstrips anybody, all the other administrations put together twofold, and, but nobody seems to care. Back to the optimism. Now, if Biden and Harris win, I think we'll go back to uh, Paris, the Paris Accords, and, and try and get the world back together to recognize the dangers and threat of uh, climate change. We need a world that is in unity. We don't need to isolate ourselves. I just think there'll be a healing. It'll be slow, but sure. But remember, we have to take the Senate first. So if nothing else happens, if Trump wins and we can flip the Senate, I think that's really gonna be a key. And that's where the focus should be right now. Because even if Biden wins, I'm not convinced that Trump will leave office. Now, I don't know what'll happen, but I'm really not convinced that he will leave office. He'll certainly challenge the results. He's already said he's going to if he loses. He's trying to control the postal service because it's gonna be mail-in voting. So we'll see. I'm not overly optimistic, but I am. I think there's still some faith that I hold in the American public that they will do the right thing and that their moral compass will be their guide in the voting booth. And if it is, there's no way Trump will win.
0: Karen Bowers is hopeful the Senate and Congress as a whole can work more efficiently if Mitch McConnell and some of his Republican cohorts can be thrown out.
4: I, as a political theorist, about American politics and and so forth. I do believe that this country works in incremental ways. I do believe when we had a legislative process before Mitch McConnell and so forth. And I worked in the California legislature for the Rules Committee and also for a, a committee. So I, I saw a legislative process when it was working well and when it wasn't working well, even at the state level. And I do believe in debate, and I do believe in putting issues before people that matter. And because we're so diverse, we have to synthesize, and there are compromises in politics. That is just something that I know, and maybe because I'm old, I'm willing to say that it is not black and white. We live in a more gray world. And to make progress, we have to bring people together. Sounds trite, but I think it's true. To sift through on the policies. So, um, you know, for example, Medicare for All. We had many presentations on that at our club. And I think that policy-wise, as a progressive club, we believe in it. Yet, I look at what Joe Biden is suggesting, and I really think that that is the way to move forward. Unfortunately, Obama couldn't get the public option in originally, but I think lowering the age for Medicare is is a good step forward, and also, you know, adding that public option into the mix. So I think bolstering the Affordable Care Act at this point is is probably, we can't, There's so much stuff that's been dismantled. I think we have to build on what we have done positively first. And so it's a long list of what has been dismantled. and needs to be rebuilt and obviously, hopefully in a better way than it was before.
1: Margaret Halib combines a global perspective with hopes there will be positive movement coming from the local community.
6: I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen in November I feel like there's a there's a larger struggle on the globe right now between a kind of fascism and nationalism and a more humane progressive way of being in the world. And I don't know how that'll go, irrespective of the election. And, you know, there are a lot of things I just don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with the climate. I truly don't know. One of the things that I like really don't know is I really don't know what our own local landscape is going to be like once whatever the next phase of COVID occurs. I don't know if we're going to have an economy. I don't know what it'll look like. I don't know how much more intense concerns about food and, and um, you know, evictions and people getting along in their daily lives. I, I don't know what that's going to look like. So I guess in terms of what I'm hopeful about, I feel like one of the things that I have always loved about this community is that it is a little bit Catholic worker-like and that we're kind of low to the ground. We can get along without a huge... Lot of external infrastructure, and I wish we had decent broadband. And we will figure out ways to support each other and to build the entities that we need. You know, I look at these really smart disaster preparedness groups that are doing all this incredible organizing in their local communities, and I look at the you know the young farmers and ways that people are getting their produce out to all of us and. I I think there's a fair amount of kind of survival intelligence here. And I've been in a conversation with, a conservation biologist friend of mine, a lot about scale and about how much things at the individual level matter. And she's interested particularly in climate matters. But the same is true, I think, in lots of ways. How much does individual action matter? How much does community-based action matter? And how much does larger national, international policy matter? I think my own hope and my own allegiance is kind of anchored at the community level. I think all three matter, but I think that um, we have the most capacity for the, you know, for the least number of volts or whatever to make life livable at the community level, to do it for each other and with each other, you know, and um, I kind of feel like whatever happens and, you know, I, despite my protestations, I can get kind of dire about how it could look in the future. I feel like we'll take care of each other as best we can.
0: Mendocino 5th District Supervisor Ted Williams also yearns for stronger community action, as well as for a return of civility in the public square.
2: I would like to see the tone change. And I'm in a nonpartisan office, and I, I take it that the obligation serious to represent all of the people in Mendocino County. And the people in Mendocino County have different uh, national political stances. And yet they're still members of our community, even if they don't agree with me on a national level. And, uh, their ideas need to be heard. They're valued. A lot of the local issues are not partisan. Doing better on providing mental health services with the funds we have available. It's not a partisan issue. It's more about good execution. So I'm always hesitant to take a side in partisan issues on a state or national level because I want to represent everybody. That said, I've been displeased by many of the remarks of our president. And it has more to do with the tone and the character and how we treat one another. And I think if you have the president making these statements, it does trickle down, and it becomes acceptable for others to make similar statements. And I mean, I can, I can give you endless examples. Um, I think one that really turned me off was uh, his attack on John McCain, where uh, I think he said, I like people who weren't captured. And that struck me as, here you have a man who honorably served his, his nation, and he was prisoner of war and you're going to go attacking him. That's not debating issues on merit. That's not deciding, do we want a, a progressive or conservative uh, direction? It's, it's just unacceptable. You don't talk about uh, fellow Americans that way. You know, uh, early statements, grab them by their unacceptable, right? Do we want to suggest that that's the way we re- refer to women in our nation? And blowing it off is locker room talk. I don't talk that way in a locker room, And uh, if I did, I wouldn't expect to find myself in public office. Describing Mexicans as drug dealers, criminals, and rapists, totally unacceptable. So the words we choose are important. No matter who's president, I would like to see the words shape our future in a way that finds common ground, treats each other with respect, sets an example. You know, there's we can talk about infrastructure and ensuring that in our Economic system, the folks who fall through the cracks have an opportunity to get back up. All of those details are important. I think whether we have a progressive or a conservative in office, we can make progress. We can find that common ground. But I don't think we can get there if we're uh, attacking fellow Americans based on uh, ethnicity, gender, or any other characteristic that uh, should not be consequential in 2020.
1: Christy Olson Day has done a lot of researching in progressive journals and with indivisible.com lately. She waxes optimistic now and then and she helps us reground our group of voices.
8: Well, I mean when I'm when I'm having those moments of optimism, you know, <laughs> uh, it does seem to me like the, the the nation is ready for a more progressive and inclusive future. I feel like the window of public discourse has moved pretty dramatically to the left. The things that we're talking about, the things that we're sort of like tolerated to be talking about in public, have changed. The book you refer to this, We Are Indivisible, and yeah, they, they, the Indivisible organization, which I'm so impressed by, the young people leading it are just remarkable. And it's huge, uh, you know, the size, the scope, the ambition of this particular grassroots organization that has sprung up from just a, the Google doc that the two founding members posted online that November of 2016, and now it's just enormous. They, in that book, talk about their uh, first hundred days, They, they call it a day one democracy agenda, their day one democracy agenda that includes things like statehood for DC and Puerto Rico, you know, which was when the book came out, this ambitious, wow, kind of project, but we're talking about it a lot more now already, abolishing the filibuster, expanding the Supreme Court, neutralizing the Electoral College, making Automatic voter registration, universal, and these projects for democracy, and then all the things that have become part of the public discourse now, like free public college, universal health care, you know, a Green New Deal. I think that we're not going to get any of those things, and we're not going to get a new president without massive, sustained, nonviolent civil disobedience. I mean, that's my sense of it is that all those things are within our reach, and that huge voter turnout is going to be necessary and is not going to be sufficient. I think that we are going to have to require that he leave office, we're we're going to have to realize that we are the enforcement arm of the Constitution, it doesn't enforce itself, and we're going to have to kick him out. <laughs> so I think we can do that. You know, I mean, I, I I think we're totally capable. I'm not worried about it. But we do have to be have to be ready, you know, we have to be ready to do that. So I don't know what things look like. I think that a year from now, I think it's completely wide open. It could be, things could be a lot better. Things could be a lot worse. I saw this headline recently that life under an autocracy is mostly boring and tolerable. We might be there. Things might be largely the same and mostly boring and tolerable. I think it's wide open. I think it really depends on what we do this fall.
4: This land, it's your land. this land is your
1: land. Yes, it depends on what happens on Tuesday, November 3rd and in the days following when we find out how this massively consequential election plays out. As I edit this together, we have just endured perhaps the newsiest two weeks in American political history. Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, then Donald Trump's nominating a right-wing replacement, then the New York Times releasing a massive report on the president's multiple years of tax avoidance. Then our first presidential debate, where the president talked over or interrupted Joe Biden about 120 times in 90 minutes. Then we found out Trump had been diagnosed with COVID-19 and that his Amy Coney Barrett coming out party the previous weekend was a super spreader event, infecting numerous Trump partisans. This is a time of cacophonous chaos and disruptive anarchy.
0: We thank Karen Bowers, Stephen Dunlap, Carrie Durkee, Margaret Holub, Mo Mulherin, Christy Olson-Day, Lindy Peters, Lucretia Renteria, Andy Wellspring, and Ted Williams for rising to our challenge, taking the time to talk with us, and sharing their concerns. These ten voices of Mendocino are bright, they are engaged, and they are hopeful for better times for a competent, caring, reasonable, and just leadership as we head into to the third decade of the 21st
1: century. So we will see what happens on Tuesday, November 3rd and in the days after. In the meantime, Snap Sessions has had a chance to sample 10 concerned and active citizens here in Mendocino County. We thank these folks profusely for their time and for their commitment to a better future.
6: For you and me yeah.
4: One bright sunny morning
0: Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you heard, please
3: subscribe to us on Patreon. We depend on the support of listeners like you.